0: Father, I pray now that as we turn to your holy word on this Easter morning, that you would open up our hearts and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are yielded to your way. And so, Lord, would your Holy Spirit be our teacher in this time. I pray that you take me out of the way, remove distraction from our mind, fill us with a heart of devotion and attention to you. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All right, well, I'd imagine at uh, some point in your life you've done some flying. I know some of you fly pretty much on a weekly basis. Uh, I came to a conclusion about 12 years ago that... When you are flying with your family, it it exponentially becomes much more difficult. And I uh, had an event that took place that just just drove this home for us about 12 years ago. My wife and I and our small family, we had two kids at that point, uh, age three and age one. And we also had one on the way. And we were making our way from Portland, Oregon to Florida to go take part of my brother's graduation from college. And so we took a flight from Portland to St. Louis. St. Louis, we we're supposed to pick up a plane flying into Florida and there was some terrible weather taking place in St. Louis. So bad that we had to go all the way around it and fly in from the east. It made us significantly late. When we arrive, it's just minutes before our flight is supposed to take off and so they do the thing, we'll, we'll call them and see if we can't hold the plane. And you run as fast as you can, and you're a little lady, you know, like, what are you thinking? You know, I got two kids, I got all my two car seats, you got the double stroller, all our carry-ons, and so so we're going to do it, because I don't have any intentions to spend a lot of extra time in St. Louis, so we get everybody loaded up in their little seats there. Uh, Karina's in position, she's seven months, seven months pregnant, she's got her tennis shoes on, and I pick up those car seats, and I am like the fullback, making a way for the ball carrier. And we are flying from Concourse C to Concourse D, now... I'm sure we were a sight to behold. And, you know, you're running through the airport. And, you know, you want to take advantage of every opportunity to make up some extra seconds. You don't have those moving sidewalks, right? So you run on those. Well, okay, those are a little narrow entry and stuff like that. We were doing pretty good. All of a sudden, I hear this, grants And I turn around with my wife. And uh, apparently we hadn't made a smooth entry onto one of the moving uh, moving sidewalks. And there was my stroller, double stroller with my two kids in there. It's disabled. One of the wheels had been bent in. And so you drop all your stuff and I'm down there on my hands and knees trying to bend that wheel back into place. I mean, it must have been pathetic. We eventually get onto the the plane. You know how it is when you are you've been working hard? I'm sweating like a marathon runner. And you know how much people love to wait. They're holding the plane for us. You get on there. I'm coming with my car seats. Our two kids, my pregnant wife, you know, she's kind of crawling her way back there. And you can just feel the love. You know what I mean? They're just, just looking at you. And, you know, and it's, it's a glare. I've had this several, you know, that probably made them miss their plane, so I didn't miss mine. And so you eventually go to the back, because that's where you assign kids and with little children and all that. And you plop down. And you're totally exhausted. And then of course they start off with their announcements about in the event of an emergency. And you're like, I don't want to hear about that. You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to fix my stroller, right? And then they, they go on and they start talking about in the event that we need to make an emergency landing and they're talking about all these safety measures on the plane and no one's listening. I'm not listening. Uh, there's a gal across the way. She's opening up a candy bar. Another guy's reading the newspaper. Someone's feeding crackers to a little baby. And they go through this field. The airlines have realized that no one's paying attention to the flight attendants. And so what they've, they've installed all these pop down monitors because we all know as Americans that if it's on TV, it's important. Right. And, and it has dramatically improved people's ability to pay attention because as soon as those screens go down, oh, this is important. They have seen that video maybe 50 times. They're locked in. And they know everywhere all the aisles that they need to go to in case of an emergency exit. But it's really interesting. The only time you ever think about the safety features of the plane you're on is when the pilot gets on and says, we're experiencing a little turbulence as you're flying around and your pretzels go flying, your Coke dumps. And then you're like, now what was that lady saying up there? And you start digging through that little pouch in front of you trying to find the safety features of your plane. Because that is really the only time, if you've ever been in extreme turbulence, that you really start thinking like, this plane could crash. And I'm in it. What am I supposed to do? It's really interesting. People treat airline instructions given to the by the flight attendants about what to do in the face of disaster, about the same way they treat what the Bible calls as the word of the cross. See, God has given a message to the world. It is the message of rescue, it is the message of hope, and it's the message of life. You must truly trust Christ if you're to experience life and redemption from your sin. And this message is so critical that it is called the word of the cross. And in one verse, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, you have a verse in the Bible that literally splits humanity in half. This verse clearly spells out the destinies of people. And it simply says this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God. The word of the cross. We treat the cross many times like a decorative element. Crosses are very popular for jewelry, earrings, put them on T-shirts, back of leather jackets. But you need to understand that the cross was the Romans' implement of torture and execution. The word of the cross speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, he didn't wear crosses like jewelry. You didn't have them dangling from your ears because the cross represented torture and an extreme, painful, shameful death. If you're a Roman citizen, why, well, you had the guarantee that you would never be crucified because It was considered too indignant for a Roman citizen to die in such a horrific way. This was for foreigners and slaves. And the Romans actually executed people by crucifixion on a regular basis. They would actually do it in very public ways or along roads because it would remind people that they had overrun in their empire, that Rome was in control. And so you had these regular reminders of these people dying on these painful deaths on cross and they could keep them alive literally for days. People would either be tied to these crosses or they'd actually be nailed to them and they would die a very slow death of the fixation. They would just suffocate before that. They had been scourged. It was messy. It was ugly. It was brutal. And yet when we come to the message regarding Christ, it's referred to as the word of the cross. We're familiar with the physical anguish and torture and pain, the cross must have been for Jesus. Nails, piercing hands, feet, being whipped, lashed, dying. But as horrific as the physical punishment was, on a far grander, larger, more exponential scale was the spiritual suffering that Christ endured on the behalf of his people. You see, God had, from eternity past, deemed that he would provide redemption for his people. He would actually make a full disclosure of his character, demonstrating both his love and his justice, grace and mercy, in this act of his son coming to this earth, living a perfect life, and then fully yielding himself to die a painful, torturous death on a cross. Like in Psalm 22, it actually talks about piercing hands and feet. And that was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. Or Isaiah 53 talks about a suffering servant, a Messiah who will come and die for his people. He will be brutalized beyond recognition. This is Jesus written 700 years prior to the event. And as far great as the physical agony, it was the spiritual implications that were taking place. What happened on the cross is that God actually placed the sins of those of his people upon the Savior himself. He was completely perfect. He was absolutely righteous. And this perfect Passover lamb dies on the cross, like it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Or like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it said, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now we don't know fully how this all happened. It was it's such a mystery and it is so profound that Christ would come and actually pay the penalty for sin that from when Christ was on the cross from noon to three PM, he had been on the cross three hours prior to that, a supernatural darkness comes over the land so that people simply couldn't see the agony of Jesus paying the full penalty of the sin of his people. It was excruciating. It was far greater than you and I could, have, could imagine. It was far greater than physical pain. It was the spiritual anguish of facing God's full wrath and experiencing justice for us, dying in our place. After, after this happened at about 3 o'clock that afternoon, Christ had been on the cross now for six hours Jesus uttered a very unique statement. All the prior times, Jesus always referred to God the Father as his Father, expressing this divine, intimate fellowship that he has with the Father that's existed throughout all all eternity. At three o'clock that afternoon, he uttered these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is some sort of Breakdown in eternal fellowship and in favor that Christ had always had. Jesus had always had as the God, the son with the father, that when he actually became sin on our behalf, this fellowship was torn. And that when this took place, Christ fulfilled and paid the penalty for our sin. In fact, right before he dies, Jesus utters these words. It is finished. It's paid for and he yielded himself up fully and died. So great was his death. Unlike any other person that ever died, that centurion that was overseeing the crucifixion that day said, certainly this must be the Son of God. Now, please do not take Jesus and make him some sort of martyr. Jesus didn't die for a good cause and just lay down his life to be a demonstration of love. Jesus came willingly to fulfill the will of the father to die in the place for his people. You know, there were two others that were crucified that day, two criminals. They would have been resisting with everything in their body when they saw where they were going, being drugged. Their feet would have been trying to push back against these soldiers, fighting every step of the way to prevent themselves from being hung on a cross. But not Jesus. Jesus willingly went though so brutalized because of the beating that he took that another had to carry that beam, he willingly laid down his life for his people. You see, the cross, its why he came. He came to pay the penalty for the sin of his people. And it says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Our sin is our disregard to God, our disobedience, our disrespect of Him, living as if He doesn't exist, the heinous activities that no one would ever want publicized that you and I have done, said, fought, every offense to His holiness. That is sin. It's missed the mark of Him. It had to be paid for. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Christ came to pay the penalty for our sin. But the story doesn't end there. Christ just doesn't die. He must rise again if he's truly going to offer real, eternal, spiritual life for all who will believe in him. And so the glorious truth of Easter, the celebration of the day and of eternity, is that Christ, who was crucified, was laid in the tomb on that third day He rose again. It was amazing. People were in disbelief. The women that came and heard the testimony of the angels, these apostles that came and ran to the tomb and saw the, the grave clothes, they were just lying. And then Jesus started making appearances to them. Eventually, to Thomas, he appeared to more than 500 others and he showed himself alive. He wasn't a mirage. He wasn't a spirit. He'd have him come. I want you to take your fingers and put it in my hands. Put your hand, put it in my side where that sword lance, to side to prove that he was dead. Come and be not unbelieving, but believe. He ate in front of them to show that he wasn't some sort of just spirit. He was alive, bodily alive, authenticating to the world. Indeed, he's God that the punishment and the penalty for sin has been in paid and that the power and possibility for true relationship with God has been established because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. And that, my friends, is the word of the cross. And so this word of the cross, you know, it's it's like the continental divide. You know, what the continental divide is, don't you? It's that place that we kind of map out in America. It's up there in Canada, but it's. It determines whether the water runs to the Atlantic or it runs to the Pacific. And it's marked out, this is the continental divide. Jesus, his message, the word of the cross is the continental divide. It separates people. They will go in one or two directions. For the word of the cross is, look at verse 18, foolishness to those who are Perishing. You see, it's foolishness to people, this idea that God becomes man and he dies on some sort of hill and some nondescript place and he's killed and somehow he pays the penalty for the sin of mankind. That that's just what many people think that's just crazy. Idiotic. In fact, that's the word foolish means Moria it it has it means it's where you get a word moron from, foolish, idiotic. you mean to believe that that some man becomes God, what what that and he dies, and somehow that has benefit and merit for you? you. know why mankind finds the word of the cross foolishness because it doesn't account for their merit, all their good things, their thinking, their attributes, their philosophy, and so. Rejection takes a variety of flavors, but you need to know that the word of the cross is foolishness to many people. Let me just give you some of the stripes or varieties of rejection of people that are presently rejecting Jesus Christ today. Some have the outright, hostile, shake your fist at God approach. Maybe you've been one of them. Most certainly you've seen people like this. People that are just they're just mad and angry at God and and yet they at the same time they want to call themselves agnostic, they don't know, or atheists. There's no God. That's just crazy. And so they're just mad and angry and they despise any idea of God and of Jesus. The whole of the idea of Jesus dying on a cross and raising again. That is a joke. And it solicits laughter in certain settings. And so we have folks like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, who writes a book *The God Delusion*, or a Princeton University professor of bioethics by the name of Peter Singer—they just outright, literally, just mock the whole idea of God, the triune God, crucifixion, Jesus. This Peter Singer—I mean—he cheerfully advocates uh, killing of babies, euthanasia, killing of older people, or people that have some sort of disabilities. In fact, He's taken his logic to the point where he thinks that a baby should be killed all the way up to 28 days after the womb. And you decide if this is necessary or not. Because God creating life, man in the image of God. No, not for this person, professor. Or, for instance, in 1987, there was a man by the name of Andres Serrano. He's a photographer and artist. He received a $15,000 prize, which was paid by the National Endowment of the Arts, uh, sponsored by the U.S. government. He received this prize of $15,000 for a picture that he took. He took a a little plastic cross with Jesus on it called a crucifix. He put it in a glass of his own urine, and he took pictures of it. And he received a $15,000 prize for an award, all to just be an incredible affront to God, to mock him. To despise him, to shake your little fist at him and say, how do you like that? I remember shortly after I'd been a Christian, had been several months, at the Student Union of the University of Oregon, the uh, group Campus Crusade for Christ was showing this Jesus film. And all the people were gathered around. It was a scene where where Jesus was being beat and whipped before he goes to that cross. and, And it was just like people just walked in except a group of guys were cheering the Romans. And people were just like, what? Because they just despised Christ, and they thought this would be a great way just to mock him. Right here in front of everybody else, it's just kind of in shock and horror of this Jesus who had come to die and pay the sins for a lost humanity. Islam, they take the story of Jesus' death as an affront to Allah. And you believe that, and you are an enemy, and in some places they'd like to kill you. And even as of today, that is happening. You see, some people reject Christ and the message of the Word of the Cross, as like shaking their fist, despise everything about Him. But there's a lot of people, though, that have the approach that I'm, I'm simply just not interested, or I could care less. I'm I'm indifferent. You want to believe in Jesus and have a nice little Easter and believe that He rose from the grave? That's totally fine but you keep me out of it. They're they like, that's fine if you want to believe that. Other folks, you're going to have churches, it's fine. It's probably good for the community somehow. I'm not sure how that works out. But I'm far more interested in my own life, my own hobbies, my own family, my occupation, my career. I've got business decisions. I've got money to make. I've got leisure to live. I'm concerned about my golf score. And so what they are, they basically orient their life on everything of the horizontal. And it's not that they absolutely hate God or hate Christ. Just care less, they're not interested. It means very little to them. And then there's this third category of people. They are friendly to the idea, but foreign to its application in their life. There are many people who will go to church, some very regularly. They might even have know some Bible verses. They are very familiar with the message of Jesus Christ. They could tell you the gospel. But they themselves are truly not united and believing in Christ. You ask them, if, are you a Christian? And they tell you what church they go to. It's as if they identify far more with an institution or a denomination than they do with a crucified and risen Savior. They would be in favor of Jesus. It's just that they truly don't know him. They would go through emotions and they could sing songs, but they truly have never embraced United themselves with Christ. They never confessed sin. They never repented or turned from sin and truly trusted Christ. They just kind of make radical assumptions. I was born into a church. Folks always took me or I've started going with my wife or whatever. And you make the assumption that I must be a Christian because I show up at a church every once in a while. Or I'm here at Easter even. Friends, you need to know that if you have not truly trusted Jesus Christ and the word of the cross, The word is extremely clear for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The result of never truly trusting Christ is that you will eternally perish. The word speaks of complete destruction and loss, no matter how you get there, whether you reject him with anger, you could care less or you actually like to sing the songs and you think, yeah, Christianity, that's pretty kind of nice, makes some nice people, but you've never truly trusted Christ. The result is that you would perish. There was a man by the name of Harry Truman, not the president, but an 84-year-old man that lived on the side of a mountain called Mount St. Helens. He had lived on the side of Mount St. Helens for 50 years. And so when the geologists were just noticing all the tremors that were taking place there, they were taking this seriously in Washington and nearby Oregon. This Mount St. Helens is gonna blow. This is a volcano and it's active and we have to get people away from the danger zone. Well, Harry Truman have lived in this house for 50 years and so they came time and time after again to tell him, you have got to leave. Some, at some point, this mountain is going to blow apart and you are, you are in the disaster zone. And Harry Truman, like, no way. Get out of here and get off my property. You want to take my picture standing here? Why don't you go ahead and do that? But I'm not leaving. I've been here for 50 years. I don't care. Get out. He became somewhat of a national celebrity and sensation with his just complete defiance of all logic and defying this warning and these messages. And then on May 19th, 1988, 32 a.m., there was an earthquake, magnitude 5, that led to one of the largest recorded landslides in history. The whole side of the mountain just crumbled down. And there is a, a lateral blast of volcanic eruption that went. And it covered 150,000 square foot miles. And it just, excuse me, acres. And it just completely obliterated all life. Even, I mean, it was, they had a safety zone, you know, for people kind of watch. Fifty-seven people died as a result of the volcano going off, and many of those were in the safe zone. When they went back to try to figure out where in the world Harry Truman's house might be, I mean, it looked like a lunar landscape. There was ash just everywhere. When they figured out this must be about the area, they estimated that he was buried under 30 feet of volcanic material. The next day in the Longview Daily News, this was what the article titled was titled Harry Truman lived and likely died by his own rules You know for a lot of people that's what your life that's what their life is going to be You lived and you died by your own rules Perhaps you've heard the warning and the message. You must believe in Christ because you have but this lifetime to place your faith in him. And after that, should you not be trusting in him and you not be united with this risen living savior, you perish. And it's really interesting. Jesus talked far more about hell than he did heaven. Absolutely warning. You simply do not want to go there and spend eternity in a tormenting, eternal separation from the love of the father. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And yet many people just disregard the message, the word of the cross. Years ago, I was in a setting where I was talking with some of my relatives and the subject of religion, Christianity, and the fact that I was a Christian came up. And we were talking. uh, It was kind of one versus like about six or seven that thought it was rather amusing that I was a Christian And so kind of in a laughing way, and one of them said, well, do you really think we're all going to go to hell? I said, well, the Bible says clearly that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you cannot go to heaven. (laughs) Ha! Well then, well, if I go to hell, at least I'll be in good company. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. And they all laughed. A couple years after that individual, that relative, made that statement, He died. I was at his funeral. And when they carried his casket out, they had that guy on those bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. And I was so hoping that he had truly placed his faith in Christ and experienced the Amazing Grace that was being played on this bagpipe. You know, there's a lot of people, most people know that song very well. Many are going to request to have it played at their funeral. But you can know the song But you must absolutely know the Savior, or it means nothing. You see, for some, if you consider the message of Jesus, the word of the cross, foolishness, you're in a state where you are perishing. You will experience utter ruin, guaranteed. On the other hand, though, if you truly believe That Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That everything promised and prophesied has been fulfilled as recorded. That he not only was crucified, but he rose from the grave. And you accept his offer. You accept his payment for your sin on the cross. You turn from yourself and all of your little philosophies and everything, all your good behavior. And you trust Christ and Christ alone. Notice what the text says. But to us who are being saved, that word sozo has the idea of being rescued that another had to rescue you, those who are being rescued, saved. It is the power of God. You see, you and I are completely helpless to save ourselves. God must do it. And he does. He does it through the proclamation of his message about Jesus Christ dying for our sins, rising again. It's the gospel that if you believe, he rescues you from death. And you see, it is a power. It's a power for salvation from sin. Do you know that if you believe in Christ, Jesus Christ has paid your sin. You are forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. You've been released from your sin because Christ has paid it on your behalf. And don't you see that you and I were sinners? I mean, it's kind of like an infection that has spread throughout our whole body. It affects everything about us. Don't you see in your mindset your your disregard your relationships and all their breakdown and the, the stuff that goes on in your heart. How much we need a Savior And so we have one. It is Jesus. You see, it says in Romans five, eight, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love, his justice and his mercy by inviting us to trust him. You see, when you believe in Christ, you're eternally forgiven. And you will experience heaven because it's been secured by Christ. In fact, to be absent in this body from the moment you die, if you truly know Christ and trust him, it is to be present with the Lord. Far from perishing, you experience the power and reality of the resurrection of Christ. But not only does Christ give us power for salvation from sin, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, there is power for life and In this world, strength, energy, the ability to overcome sin. We can no longer be paralyzed by our fears because we are now united with a risen one who has overcome death. He's conquered it. We have strength. We don't have to uh, submit to temptation because we have the strength, the strength of Christ, his spirit dwelling in us that we can actually overcome. You need strength for parenting, wisdom in this world. It's found in Jesus, the resurrected one. In fact, Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is it that is so difficult in your life? What is keeping you from merging forward? It's so hard. It's so difficult, so painful. Do you not know that we who are united with Christ, because he's risen, we have a power and a strength that comes from him. Years ago, I was invited to a home of a contractor. His wife had been coming to church. She had had a revival in her faith and relationship with Christ. And in this renewal, she started talking with her husband. Finally, her husband agreed that he would actually talk with me. So I went over to their house, and I just started sharing with him about this message of Jesus, of what he's done, how he crucified, how he rose again. We're talking about this, asking some different questions, covering some different scripture passages. And then he just kind of called a stop to the meeting. Got real quiet. And then he said, a year ago, I got down on my hands and knees and I asked God to show me the way. And that night, meeting at that family's kitchen, I had the privilege of seeing this man for the first time. Put his trust in his faith in a risen Savior and to experience the power of the resurrection because he believed the word of the cross. So if you're here today without truly knowing Jesus Christ, what keeps you from putting your faith in him? Do you know that your response to the word of the cross has eternal implications? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For today is your day of opportunity. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. On July 28th. 1945 lieutenant colonel william smith was flying his b25 he was making his trip to newark he had been left bedford massachusetts and he is making his way to newark new jersey it was an extremely cloudy day the clouds were hanging very low there was a very dense fog as he is making his way on a somewhat routine flight i mean the guy had lots of flying experience he didn't think a whole lot of it but the air, air traffic controllers in newark said You cannot land here. The fog is way too dense. The the clouds are way too low. They're hanging basically down on the earth itself. You're going to have to go to another airport. And they're trying to send LaGuardia in in New York. Well, Lieutenant Colonel William Smith, you know, he'd had several years of combat experience in World War II. He'd flown planes all through all sorts of difficult conditions. He said, well, thank you very much, but I plan on landing my plane just as planned in New York. Thank you. Well, they got back uh, with him, and they said, "No, you don't understand. You won't be able to see the buildings in New York. The Empire State Building cannot be seen. We're directing you. Change your course and do it now." Well, Smith said, "Well, thank you very much for your advice, but I think I'll just keep on flying." And so he did. And he dropped his plane down. He's getting ready to do for his landing. When he slipped underneath the clouds, him and his two passengers in that B-25 were just horrified by what they saw. Far from flying above the buildings, they were actually flying in between the buildings in New York. And right in front of them was the Empire State Building. Because he had already dropped his landing gear, he couldn't actually even bring the plane up, and it went crashing into the 78th and 79th floors of the Empire State Building. Smith, his two crew members, 11 people in that Empire State Building, immediately were killed 25 other people were injured one woman was on the 79th floor in an elevator and that one of the wings went and severed the cables and she goes shooting all the way down crash she actually survived that particular accident and we were all thinking what in the world happened they speculated that perhaps um if his landing gear wasn't down, maybe he would have been able to pull out of it. But um, one thing is absolutely certain. How Lieutenant Colonel William Smith heeded the warning. listened to the message. Disaster could have been averted. And so it is with the word of the cross. You see, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are Perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, for Smith, he didn't heed the warning. And he didn't believe the message. How about you? What will you do with Jesus? If today God has your full attention, you do realize that it is your sin that put Jesus on the cross. And you realize, ah, Apart from trusting him, I will perish. I invite you this morning, put your whole confidence, your trust and your faith in Jesus who is risen from the grave. And you will experience the power of God. You will have the certainty that you will be going to heaven, that your sins are paid for because Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we're at one of those profound and holy moments in the life of the church and in our community where you have our complete attention. And we have seen from your word with great clarity that we must believe the word of the cross, that Jesus who came and paid the penalty for our sins is the only way we can have forgiveness of sins. And Father, I just would pray right now that if there's people that have come here today who have never truly trusted Christ, that they would just pray with me right now. Say, Lord, you know all about me my sin. Plowing through life, perhaps for decades now. But today I finally get it. I turn, Lord, from... Wicked things I've done, my sin, my disregard for you, my complacency. And right now, I place my faith and my trust in him. And Lord, I believe in Jesus. And I believe that he has given me eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, may I walk in the newness of life. And for all of us on this glorious morning, let us be refreshed and renewed that we're in relationship with a living savior who has conquered the grave and sin and we can live victorious in him we can walk in the newness of life and there is great joy in life because our eternity has been secured and our present is a glorious reality of walking with the living lord so lord we love you and we thank you and we pray in jesus name amen